I think the most important thing is to not abandon security just because we have an emergency. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I get to speak with Martin Littman, CISO of Kelsey Siebold Clinic, about the potential risk associated with a shift to remote work and strategies for protecting your operations. Working within dispersed teams is often part and parcel of a CISO's job. But what happens when unforeseen conditions cause an exceptional shift where organizations find themselves working from home? Martin, thank you so much for joining us on the show. For the uninitiated, please, if you would, introduce yourself. Certainly. Thank you for having me today. My name is Martin Littman. I'm the Chief Technology Officer and the Chief Information Security Officer for Kelsey Siebold Clinic, which is a multi-specialty medical group practice in the largely greater Houston area of Texas. Awesome. If you would, for again, in terms of your employer, maybe tell us a couple of things that are unique about Kelsey Siebold. I know there's several and you've been there a long time, so you've got a ton of the history. Some people may not be familiar, but you guys are an interesting organization. Maybe a couple things there that's unique that you could share. Certainly. We are uh, probably one of the things that people may come to find out is for many, many years, Kelsey Siebold's one claim to fame was being the healthcare provider, occupational medicine provider for NASA and for the astronaut corps. And uh, Kelsey Siebold has been around the Houston area for 70 years. We were started by a couple of guys who left the Mayo Clinic who basically wanted to create a Mayo-like environment in Houston. We're unique in that we are privately held, and the physicians who work for us are actually employees of Kelsey Siebold Clinic, the medical group which is a fairly unique model in healthcare because most hospitals don't actually, if you will, own their physicians. We're also primarily an ambulatory-oriented organization. So we provide healthcare out of about uh, 23 or 24 different locations in the Houston area today, which includes two ambulatory surgery centers, a couple of cancer infusion centers, a certified sleep center, and we do have some of the most advanced cancer treatment at our main campus facility where we run a radio surgery system called Varian that uh, is one of the most advanced radio surgery systems in the country. And I think that uh, it may be the most advanced one in the Houston area. In addition to that, we are a five-star Medicare Advantage plan one of uh if you if you know anything about medicare advantage a five star rating is very hard to achieve we're one of only a couple in texas the only one in the houston area and one of only less than i think 25 or so in the united states today there's a lot going on and a lot to be proud of for sure you you uh in not only by virtue of the makeup of your organization uh that you covered very well but also the size of your organization the breadth of it, and I guess I'll say the size of your title too, you have a lot to cover. 
it's very rare to have a CTO slash CISO. In fact, I don't know that I've ever, I've met one. How did that happen? I mean, for somebody who is newer in their career, who's looking up to either the organization or the title or the sort of sort of the the prestige that we sometimes see in the eyes in our younger self, what advice do you have if you're if somebody's wanting to kind of be you? That's kind of scary. You'd have to go through my history, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. However, I will say just from an evolution standpoint, I joined Kelsey Siebold Clinic in uh, 2006 as a really in a contract opportunity for a month or two when I was working for a a large national company and became a full-time employee in 2007. So I'm in my 14th year at Kelsey Siebold Clinic. If you go back that far, I don't think we really had CISOs at that time. Information security organizations were really pretty small. And I really joined as an IT director and inherited building the security organization. And as a result of that, had the opportunity to ultimately gain the designation that I have as a chief technology officer and chief information security officer. So it has largely been an evolutionary process. I will say for people who are thinking about careers, not just in IT, but in security, that probably one of the most important things in my life historically that has benefited me was my ability to observe everything around me and take it in, even if it seemed inconsequential, because ultimately what I discovered is things that I made through passive observation became significant later on in terms of, hey, I saw that before, and that's actually impacting our infrastructure, it's impacting our security, et cetera. Okay. That is, you hit on something there. You're noting it as sort of a differentiator in your career. You know, this passive observation idea. Help me dig into that a little bit. What what is that trait or or technique for purposes of first off explaining kind of what it is, maybe giving an example, and, and is it something that can be developed for others? What's this path of observation? Yeah, it's interesting. I had a um, a boss I worked for at one point who said, "You are a wealth of unusable information." <laughs> <laughs> that was his observation at the time. Now. As it turned out over time, he said, and I've discovered how valuable that is. Yeah, I was going to say, was he, were you guys friends or was this? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, we, we've been good friends for a long time. And um, it, I'll, use a, I'll use an old example. I'm going to go back in my history from the time I was uh, first working in PCs. You may recall that the early IBM PCs, uh, Tandem Computer, made the, made the floppy drives. Mm-hmm. If people are listening, you know what floppy drives, they're on Wikipedia. (laughs) So uh, Tandem made the floppy drives. IBM decided they were going to start making their own. The specification for a floppy drive was that it was a 40-track device. IBM decided it would put a physical governor on the floppy drive to hold it to 40 tracks. But the ones that have been manufactured so far to date actually read 41 or 42 tracks. And at the time of floppy-based software, they were using track 41 or 42 for copy protection schemes like laser holes or other types of data. And they would read the drive at a low level. And then when they got an error, said, yep, this is a good disk. 
So when IBM issued these drives and the company I was working at suddenly had a bunch of these new computers, all of the licensed software stopped working. And and all the users said, we didn't steal this. It's not a it's not an illegal copy. We can prove we have a license for it. And so that observation, uh, when that all occurred, I went to the desktop guys and I said, do you still have the old computers? Go change out the floppy drives and see if that doesn't solve the problem. And sure enough, it did. So I had kind of caught that information reading a technology article probably about five or six months before the event occurred. And I can cite numerous examples, which I won't throughout my career, of stuff like that, where there are things that I read in technology magazines, my interaction with other people and just picking things up from conversations. I said, this might be a useful piece of information at some point. Well, yeah. And then having that, so understanding it, and then to those people that were having the issue, a very technical one, but one that was probably very much impacting operations, it almost, it may have seemed like magic at the time to have that type of information shared. So while it may have been useless up until that point, it became very valuable at that moment uh, that the drives were switched. Absolutely. Interesting. So we spoke earlier and, you know, one of the questions I love to ask is sort of advice to your younger self. And you kind of said you wouldn't change much. There wasn't much that you would change, I think, is, was the answer you gave. But but if if you were maybe patterning it today, if you were doing it all over today, what advice would you have to yourself? You know, to, to if there were another version of you that was 19 years old right now, what advice would you have? And maybe that person is a new hire who would love to come work at your organization. Like what, what advice do you have there about life and career? It's very interesting from multiple dimensions. On, on the one hand, I would say, and I, I, I talk with older people today, and I have a mother-in-law who's 90 plus years old. And we talk about all the advances of technology that have occurred throughout her entire lifetime. But if I go back and look at what has evolved over the last 20 years, There are things that we're doing today that 20 years ago, I said, I I just don't think we're going to get there. And so the one thing I would say to people who are starting their career today is you have to be non-limiting in your thinking about what the potential of technology will be. And not only that, the potential, the applicability of that technology. As an example, when we first started talking about doing virtual health, in our organization several years ago, we were going to kind of begin experimenting with video visits. We started that out as a pilot activity. And today, with everything that's going on, we have a massive amount uh, relative to where we started of video visits and virtual interaction. And years ago, our physicians were saying that wasn't possible. So across the space of both business and technology, I would have to say, we always talk about dream big to our kids. Well, it's not just dream, it's it's implement the dream because the dream will become the reality. You covered something. So I I came from financial services and then healthcare and in a variety of roles in as an intrusion analyst and architecture and leadership and exec leadership. But I, I think that you hit on something as a nice example. When that idea came out, to get virtual help from a doctor, there were many, many people. In fact, most, near all, were like, this can't be done. It can't be done because of HIPAA. It can't be done because how do you authenticate? It can't be done for all these technical reasons. 
it's just and it's amazing now how we've grown past that in terms of thinking and technology. I think that's a, a wonderful example. I mean, how, when you first heard about it, what was your temperature when you're like, hey, we're going to build an app or allow somebody to use their phone to get medical help? I mean, what if you can go back? I mean, were you all in or was this like, uh, I've got security issues here. I've got tech issues here. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. In, in my mind, as, a, as kind of a, a geeky guy, if you will, uh, my, my thought process was, this is, this is very feasible. My greatest concern was the ability of the physicians in the organization to adapt the business process to support it and embrace it. Hmm. I, I did certainly have some amount of security concerns. On the other hand, I built our security program. So I think we were prepared and ready and, and able to support the technology. And keep in mind that a couple of years ago, and I'm saying a couple of years, three, four, five, right? When virtual health was a, was a growing thought process, we were already a largely virtualized organization, both in terms of inside the data center and at the desktop. Hmm. So we were running virtual desktops, virtual technology. And to a large extent, we had enabled an ability for people to work almost anywhere. So. I think that brings us to a point where uh, where the past is kind of meeting the present in terms of mindset. You know, we're we're in uh, some unique times today, March twentieth, while we are recording here. The situation is requiring organizations to work more virtually, both from an operations standpoint, so tech and security ops, but also the workforce is remote. It sounds like you have had plans in the past or had technologies to support that, but I'm guessing today you're going you're full full on remote. What advice do you have for organizations that aren't as comfortable with full on remote, both from operations specific to security, security ops, and um, and then having a hundred percent remote work- workforce? You know, obviously in healthcare we still have people that have got to be. We have nursing staff, physicians, et cetera, who still are seeing patients in clinics and, and have to do that, those people really don't necessarily have the opportunity to work remote. But administrative people, support people, especially IT people have that capability. I think that part of what also goes into that is you can provide the physical security associated with that. So for example, we implemented two-factor authentication before two-factor authentication was cool, if you will. We were an early adopter of, of doing two-factor authentication. We had secure connections to our network, whether you were coming in through VPN or Citrix or whatever. And so that had always been part of our, if you will, technology DNA. But as you move people out to do remote work, the natural inclination that comes in from a, a management standpoint is, what are those people doing? How do we know they're productive? Sure. And, and we've had this question come up multiple times over the year. And sometimes I respond with, how do you know they're productive when they're sitting in their office or their cube at the, at, in the office? You're not sitting there watching them the whole time. And I'm not going to provide you technology to oversee everything they're doing. We could talk about the insider threat approach where, yes, you actually might do that. But the reality is that there has to be a mental shift to this works. People can be very productive. In fact, I would, I would argue that the IT people 
who are now actually working much more remote than they used to are, if not as productive, even potentially more productive than they have been historically. I would tend to agree, especially on the IT comment, maybe even IT security, you know, their workday, you know, I was, spent most of my, my career as a technician and carrying a pager and working, you know, late nights and early mornings and the normal workday. And so if you eliminate the commute and buy back some of that time, it's extremely beneficial. You have people that are driven by passion primarily to, to be good stewards of technology. Could you spend a little bit more, you mentioned insider threat. I don't know that I would put in, you know, sort of the concept of people not working as, as, as that threat, but do you have that concern? I mean, is that something that you get asked about often about insider threat related to your workforce in general? I mean, is that something that, that you're getting frequent queries on? And do you think that goes up or stays the same when we have a rapid shift to uh, remote work? Of course, my ability to speak to this is from a healthcare perspective. So sure. let me take that approach first, and then I can expand it generally. But from a healthcare perspective, remember that HIPAA legislation has always required us to monitor access to patient records and to be aware of who's touching what, et cetera. So we've been doing that for years, and we have tools that generate alerts that we can look at and evaluate and determine if somebody is doing something that's, uh, that's, that's not uh, mm -hmm. appropriate, right? Inappropriate access to records, snooping on things, stuff like that. There is heightened awareness of that because of uh, the various kinds of testing and things that may be going on that, uh, that causes us to, to be, <clears throat> excuse me, even more alert in watching for those things today. In the same way, you can just as easily monitor people's work in financial systems and things. So we've had different tools in place to monitor behavior, access, generate alerts, evaluate those. Some of those come through our, our log management systems. Some through, come through other intelligence systems. And there is a, a constant process that's shared across my, my security organization of looking at and evaluating those alerts and alarms and evaluating whether there's something really going on. I think that in the context of remote work, there is going to be a significant potential for insider threat. If there is somebody who might really be tempted to profiteer from being able to get to data, and now they perceive themselves to be in a position where they're not being monitored as closely because they're physically not in the office, then I think there is a risk that they may take the opportunity to, you know, extract data or sell data or do whatever they might do. Interesting. We, we do have some technical measures in place to, to protect us from that. So, for example, while people can, uh, the majority of the people connect through VDI, through Citrix, we limit, for example, the ability to print at home. You can't print from your local session to a local printer at home. So we keep you from losing data that way. So do you think in general, wearing a CTO, CISO hat, not necessarily specific to healthcare, anything else? So for the person listening that is in charge of an organization, security or, or technical, and now they have their workforce is almost 100% remote and their ops is 100% remote almost. 
and they're uh, maybe a younger leader and they've never had this scenario. They're used to everyone being on-prem, mostly. What other advice do you have? Walk them through, if you would, if they, if you were sitting across from them now, of a couple of things that you think they should consider. You know, what are the questions they should ask? Use that analytic mind that I know you've got and go through and say, hey, like, let's, let's take a break. Let's check on a couple of things. What would you have them do? There are a couple of key things. What you have to do is look at first, how have you communicated with each other in person and as a group and as an extended family of workers within the office before you were working remotely? Were you doing phone calls? Were you doing in-person meetings? Were you doing informal meetings in the hall? All of those things are going to be factors that you have to now replicate that experience or that capability when you're working remotely. So we are leveraging, for example, Microsoft Teams is, uh, since we're an O365 shop, we're leveraging Microsoft Teams. We've always used Skype. We have a greater use of Microsoft Teams. And so my advice would be there still has to be touch points, as many touch points as you had when you were physically close together. Now you're simply doing those more electronically. They can still be face-to-face. They can be video chats. They can, you can just as easily call a quick meeting. In fact, sometimes, frankly, it's a lot easier to get a group of people together quickly for a quick chat when you're remote because literally everybody is almost always in front of their terminals or not far away. And if you uh, need to call a meeting together, and, you're, and, and frankly, the meetings go faster. I usually meet with my with my leadership staff at 7:30 on Thursdays and we we run till we're scheduled till 10. I know that seems like a long time but part of that is uh is mental health time for us with each other also. And during the middle of that meeting we do our change control. But we met uh yesterday morning and um probably within an hour we had gotten through everything we usually would chat about including all the side conversations. So I think we're we're being more efficient. So my again, going back to the recommendation to somebody is you really do have to focus on how you're going to do that communication effectively. Got it. And so communication, I, I think it's a great place to start. Anything from maybe advice you'd give to the team leads or the, you know, maybe, maybe let's say, let, let's pretend you have a, a manager of information security or a team lead of InfoSec. And we know just in general that there's going to be new inbound questions about everyone is remote. What are you guys doing different or extra? Help prime the mind of that security lead into how to answer and how to think about that. Are there changes that you in general would make? Again, you're giving external advice to a mentee here. What do you have them think about? I think you do need to think about the fact that the other people who are going to be working remotely who are not as technically adept as you and your staff are going to have to interact much more with you as a security team than they possibly have historically. When they're in the office, they're in a protected environment, they're going to have lots of questions about how safe is my ability to work from home in terms of my own computer, my access to resources, what are you all looking at? And also, we need to now we don't really have an easy ability 
to physically sit down with somebody and say, let me show you how you do this two-factor authentication thing. Let me show you how you make a remote connection. We're now having to do that coaching and, and talking and support over the phone and sometimes over video. And of course, we're somewhat limited. In the office, we can remotely connect to our own machine, but we establish a practice that we will not remote to somebody's personal machine at home uh, and connect to it to try to uh, work with them. That's a that's kind of a protection for the company and a protection for them because I don't want somebody later on to say, well, you connected to my machine. And after you did that, you know, I had all this other stuff happen. Sure. I've heard in this sort of trying time that there's been organizations that even if they're licensed appropriately, that they've sort of discovered their own stress test of their remote access systems, both virtual and even more traditional like VPN. So while they're licensed okay, they've figured out that their hardware won't keep up. And so there's sort of this rapid provisioning sort of outside of the VPN uh, to maybe you know direct access to certain systems in the cloud. If you would, walk us through a, a risk scenario there. Um, I have my, my ideas, but I'm sure yours are better of, you know, you're in a situation where there's this emergency, like get them access now kind of thing. You know, the VPN isn't supporting this. We're not going to have hardware for another two weeks. Because I know this is happening, what's your sort of take on that? What, what's your recourse? What advice do you have to that scenario? Because I know it's happening. Certainly. So, I think that you touched on a couple of things that are important to understand. When you do not have a plan for a large amount of remote people and your typical plan of remote access is VPN, you will quickly find yourself overloaded from an infrastructure standpoint. And of course, we didn't have to deal with that. But so I understand that. And, and our VPN approach is you can use VPN when it's a Kelsey-issued machine. You're not going to get VPN on some personal device because I have as much risk from your device connecting to my network through VPN when I allow you to install a VPN client on your device. I think you have to plan for that. When it comes to accessing services that may be cloud-based, uh, whether it's my private cloud or in the public cloud environment, we have typically architected those to begin with to protect ourselves from, to, to have the right provisioning of access. So whether that's SAML authentication into that cloud service, which should work regardless of where you're coming from. In some cases, we do have cloud services that do IP limitations that only allow access from within our IP range. And so from my perspective, that problem is solved by you first remotely connecting to our network and then connecting to the cloud service as opposed to going direct. If I if there were a necessity to go to a direct connection to a cloud service, I would look for some secure path to be able to provide that. I know that there are a whole lot of providers who are who are offering uh, cloud-based firewall services and all kinds of things to to solve people's remote connectivity issues today. I think the most important thing is to not abandon security just because we have an emergency. So I'll use an example. We do have a, uh, a mobile app for physicians to get to our electronic medical record. It's, it's, uh, we're, we're an Epic shop. So the, there's a product called Haiku that's in the, the, the uh, Apple store or the Android store. 
So when when physicians load that application and install it, they have to have configuration from us. But then they also get an install ID associated with it. We go through a verification process with the physician to verify, yes, you installed it. Yes, this is the device. One of our people literally calls and does an interview. And then we enable them to have EMR access uh, on that mobile device. There was a suggestion that came out that said, we're going to have a lot more people doing these because this is how they do virtual visits. Maybe we need to abandon that process. And I said, no, Hmm. we've always been responsive at this. We're going to continue to be responsive. We'll be more responsive after hours because everybody's watching. So no, we're not leaving security behind. That's probably the biggest risk is people think they can leave security behind. They think they can leave security behind in an emergency. So I think that the theme of don't leave it behind, don't abandon it, it's often difficult to have that position because there's so much operational pressure. I like the idea of the interview of actually being picking up the phone and having a chat because that's sort of what's required. You know, the the doctor may expect it. They're not going to fill out a, a form or, you know, uh, but but if they may talk to someone or they're you know, someone in their staff may actually uh, talk through that registration process. It's interesting further that somebody was like, hey, we're going to do less of that. And you said, no, we're going to do more. That is a very high touch Apple genius bar kind of thing. What has been the the result of that? And do you do anything like that in any other areas of security? This really where it is direct access to the EMR is the area where this high touch level of interaction takes place. And it is the the primary driver was, again, related to HIPAA. I do not want a physician to be using their kid's phone, their wife's phone, or somebody else's device because it's convenient for them and they left there someplace else, which who leaves their phone someplace, right? Or if I'm out with my kid, I want to be able to grab my kid's phone and get in. Well, that kid should not have access to the EMR or your wife should not have access to the EMR. So that's why we what that's why we took that high touch approach. I would also say a key to all this, and going back to the communication thing, I'll just mention this, Steve, and that is we couldn't be doing all of these things if our executive leadership, by the way, who are all practicing physicians themselves if they did not support these practices and policies that I put in place. Let's spend a second on that. So they are practicing physicians. They've done the work. You've had to go and explain, obviously not HIPAA to them, but kind of the translation into technology, probably, I'm going to guess, over the last 14 years. What is that like? And how did that get its start? Meaning many people are struggling with this of either in the medical field or just in general, speaking with their executives. Let's keep it focused on healthcare for a moment. You're doing things here that are interesting. I I love the, I'm going to call it the genius bar kind of thing. You've realized that this is a kind of the most, one of the most important systems, I would say, and you're going to put a high touch process in that's supported by the board. What are the kinds of things you have to do to make that a reality? You really have to kind of go back in history. Again, we may have a unique leadership model, but I don't think it's all that different from every place else. Early on in in my tenure here, I first had to, and I report to the CIO, still do today. 
And I had to have the trust of my CIO that I knew what I was doing and that he was letting me run my business. And he did. Likewise, the chairman who he reported to, an executive director of the the management services company, was somebody that I then built a relationship with. And as we made any purchases that we made, he always asked lots of questions and I always provided lots of answers. And I took the opportunity to describe things to him in terms of analogy. I remember years ago when we were doing storage, I was explaining to him, he was thinking, I can go and buy gig drives from Best Buy. Why don't we just buy a bunch of those multi-gig drives at Best Buy instead of buying these massive storage systems? And so I spent a lot of time explaining to him how storage systems are built, how controllers work, what RPMs relate to number of instructions per second in terms of performance requirements from databases and things like that. And it, it was all that education and the willingness to say, no question is stupid. I know we hear that all the time, even from stupid questions. <laughs> Everything needs to be explained. And right. when you are forthright and transparent, trust is built. At that point, every everything that I bring forward to them is a business discussion. I tie it back to things that happen in reality. I regularly show them um, articles from other people that make mistakes or things that are being observed in both infrastructure and security and say, this is what we can do. And what has happened... So for example, we have lots of uh, hurricanes in this area, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So we survived hurricanes and stayed up and stayed active the whole time. And they said, that's because we have this great infrastructure and security. It tends to, re when you have an event and everything works, <laughs> it makes it easier to do it the next time. Sure, absolutely. And, and I never ask for more money than is necessary. I want to hit on that too while we have the time. I asked you earlier in a prior conversation of kind of what upsets you. And I'm sure we all have long lists of things that irritate us. But one of the things you mentioned was that the spend on security is frustrating, was your statement, which I think you might be hinting at. And the inverse of that is only ask for what you need, right? Sort of be frugal. What about that? How did you get that mindset? And what? why is that all of that irritating to you? Number one, not just here, but every place in my career, I have always uh, planned to spend money as if it were my own. And I'm not a wealthy guy, so I spend my money wisely. And um, when it comes to spending money then for the company, I take that same mental approach. But the other aspect of, of what I take into that is what is necessary and appropriate for the situation that I'm addressing. And while I believe in a multi-layered model of security, and let's just say that security has eight layers to it from the network to the endpoint. I'm not, I'm not saying that it is, but let's just say you have eight layers from the, from the network to the endpoint. Sure. Do you need three solutions within each of those layers? Or do you need one with maybe some overlap between the layers for each of the layers? I guess it depends on the technology that you're acquiring, and you have to be in a constant process of evaluating 
not only the the technology and how it's growing and expanding and meeting the demands, but how the threat itself has evolved. Years ago, the threat was from the outside to the inside. And, and we thought about protecting our network perimeter. Well, there is no perimeter today. I mean, there are multiple perimeters is really what it comes down to. And you have to protect at every perimeter. So I do think that the, I, I, I mean, I get contacted daily, multiple, several times a day. And I'm, I'm, that's not an exaggeration. Uh, I want to show you this technology or that technology or, yeah, you're doing this, but this does it that much better and all those kinds of things. I just have to, I spend a lot of my time going through those and evaluating them. And at some point, something may click and say, you know what? This is just a little bit better than what I'm doing already. I ought to take a look at it. You mentioned something that I liked, that there's this life cycle management that I, I think a lot of people don't do a very good job at. So there's this way to rationalize your spend. And I think in many cases, people get comfortable with the maybe the old stuff that they have uh, or wanting to sort of bolt on. So I, I like the fact that that's sort of an ingredient in the way that you run your program to have that assessment of you know how much is enough. And I think if your executives know that, and you know the, the ELT, they know that when you do ask for something that you're not just on a land grab, is my is my my guess. You know that that if you've been frugal and been able to rationalize your purchases, that when there is a need, that it's they're probably going to approve it. That's <laughs> my guess. I hope is that the case. For the most part, yes. And 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 don't think that that wasn't a, a thing to overcome. So, for example. A, uh, a medical organization buys a blood pressure cuff. How long does a blood pressure cuff live? And the answer is many, many, many years. So there are some medical devices that have very long lives. And when we were first buying PCs, and we were a very PC-based organization, and it became time to upgrade PCs, our CEO, who at the time was still carrying a Palm Pilot, by the way, was saying, why do we need to replace these machines? Likewise, why do we need to replace, why are we buying all these Blackberries back then? And it wasn't until he moved to a Blackberry himself, we finally convinced him to do it. He started to, he started to understand technology does change and evolve. And, and there really is some, something to this life cycle thing. And we began to show from a financial standpoint that, yes, we may, be able to, we may be able to continue to run this storage that we bought five years ago. However, the storage that we can buy today, we're paying that much less for that same amount as for twice the amount of storage capacity than we had before. And by the way, the maintenance on this storage is going to increase over time. So at some point, there is a, it goes back to the financial side. But there is a life cycle management that applies to infrastructure and to software and to security products. And I think what has benefited us significantly is that the security market is so visible from a consumer level as well as a corporate level. We hear security stories every day that we didn't used to hear. And in many ways, that causes people to be a bit more educated that, you know, that they will oftentimes proactively come back and say, hey, I heard about this on the news. Are we, are we protected from this? Do you like that 
because I, I've had that myself and many others listening where, you know, the executive gets on an airplane, they read an article in the paper and they come back and ask you or they forward you some sort of message. Is that a good opportunity or is that an annoying one? What's your advice on that? What's your perspective? It's a little bit of both. The uh, management by Flight Magazine is uh, is a real phenomenon. Again, this kind of goes back to the trust factor we talked about earlier. When the trust factor exists and somebody comes back to you and says, I read about this in this flight magazine, then you have the ability to say, yes, but it doesn't scale or this or actually, yes, actually, that's something we've already been looking at and we're planning to do. I think you have to not be dismissive. You have to be willing to address that valid point. This may be a bad analogy, but think about an optical illusion for a minute. Two people can look at the same thing that's an optical illusion and see different things. Sure. You may be able to use that same type of thinking to talk to somebody and say, you know, when you read something in a magazine and it says we can do all these things, there may be a bit of smoke and mirrors involved with that. But again, if you have their trust and you're able to take the specific thing that they ask about and deal with it, then you're in, in better shape. From my perspective, that's my job. My people don't have to do that because I'm doing it. It's my job to manage executive expectations, understandings, etc. No, that's perfect. Yeah. I love that that blurb on there that that is something that you want to own. I do think that's that's your job and that that many people allow that messaging to trickle down maybe too far or people volunteer to sort of manage it uh, and you get mixed messages. I I do think though that there's value in cluing in a couple of junior people to kind of see how that executive talk works. Because if they've never had to do it themselves and you've always done it and then you know you're away and they've got to answer the email, it can have disastrous results. You know, if it's something gets sort of kicked down a level or two. What do you do? What if it's the different kind of story? So the, 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 I think the thing you were alluding to might have been, hey, I read about this technology. What if they're reading about someone else's breach and you, you know, somebody gets hacked, there's a breach, makes it into some news article, the executive reads it. And the question is this, could this happen to us? Which is very wide open. What's the process or what's the thinking there? I will almost always say, yes, it absolutely will. Not wow. that it can, but I tell them, yes, it, prob- it may actually happen. But I usually also take them through the analysis of the breach that they hear about. And I, I would knock on wood, except it would make uh, a noise while we're talking here. But I think the majority of the breaches that we have heard about all have their roots in some amount of human failure. And I do relate to them that human failure over technology is one of the greatest risks that we have. It We can have something that I, I can send you email, I can warn you that it comes from the outside, I can have a message in there that's highlighted with a banner that says, don't click any links that you don't trust, and somebody will still click it. We may have technology that will analyze that click when it occurs and check out to see if it's bad or not. We may have an endpoint that protects for that. 
And for the most part, those things are going to work, but every piece of tool and technology can fail. And if a human fails and the technology fails at the same time, then you have the unfortunate marriage of a potential malware event or breach or whatever. So yes, we work to guard against those by technologies, by people, and by process. But can it happen? Yes, it can. And we will continue to be on guard for those things to happen. I could just as easily look up and, at them and say, is it possible that in your treatment of a patient, you're going to have an adverse outcome from your high quality treatment of that patient? The answer is yes. So why is my world any different than yours? For those listening, especially if you're younger and starting out and maybe you were a technician getting into leadership, like I once did, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the, again, to the last 45 seconds or minute on that answer. So there's many security organizations where uh, the answer is the opposite. It's like, no, we've, we, are, we are safe from this. We are protected from that. We are the best and we won't have a problem. And while it's good to have pride and it's good to talk about the capabilities you've added, I think having a, a similar tone, you know, make it your own, uh, and the way you answer these types of questions will be extremely beneficial, both from a leadership perspective and and um, and from a mindset perspective. So I I applaud that answer uh, very much. I've got one final question, and it's one we ask almost every guest. I think we've done it every show, and kind of tied to the title of the show itself, uh, the new CISO. Now, what does being a new uh, CISO mean? to you? What's the, what's the, the change or the mindset that we should have uh, that you want to end on here uh, for us today? I'm going to do a go back to a statement you made and tie it into this answer as well. You made a comment about mentoring younger people, et cetera. And I will, I will say that a significant part of what I have done in my career has always been to look at replacement capability and uh, and depth in my organization. So I currently work with my current information security leader to groom him to become a CISO in the future, right? So he is an upcoming new CISO. I would say that a lot of the things that are shared about becoming a new CISO are are the fodder of being in that role. But if there's anything that you've heard me say today, you will note that I have, not just because of my position, because I'm the CTO also, but information security doesn't operate in a vacuum. Mm. It's part of the DNA of everything we do. It should be part of every application conversation. It should be part of every business decision conversation. It should be part of every infrastructure conversation, and it should be part of every security conversation. Security is woven into the fabric of our daily lives in everything that we see and do and touch. We have smart everything everywhere, and all of that has to be operated within an envelope of perception of security and not perception that it's there or assumption that is there, but a test but verify that it is there. And I think the new CISO has to be somebody who's very holistic in their approach and understands the entire breadth and depth of technology. 
I very much agree. A clear and brilliant answer. Martin, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was absolutely my pleasure. I appreciate it, Steve. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.